From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. I'm a supporter of regulation best interest, but what troubles me about the background discussion that led up to regulation best interest, but also continues with the question of that fiduciary standard is this view that basically commission business should be crushed and everybody should go with a fee-based business. That's the problem I have. That was Tom Selman. He's the former head of policy at FINRA, a self-regulatory organization that operates alongside the SEC in the supervision of securities brokers and dealers. He explains what it does, how it came about, and why it is important to the smooth functioning of markets. We also discuss regulation best interest, the meaning of a fiduciary duty, the challenges in protecting investors, and the temptations of over-regulating markets. My co-host for today is UT Law student, Sloan Ungerman. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for having me. Or should I say, hook'em, UT alum. That's right. And my co-host today, uh, Sloan Ungerman from uh, the UT Law School. Sloan, welcome. Thank you for having me. So Tom, we, we want to talk today about uh, FINRA and financial markets. But before we do, I, I think there are a lot of people out there that don't know what FINRA is or what FINRA does. And we're hoping you can explain at a high level what the answer to that is. Sure, Scott. And thanks again for having me here. I really appreciate it. FINRA is a financial industry regulatory authority, and it is a strange hybrid. It's a private company, a private nonprofit company that has a regulatory responsibility that emanates from federal statute. So you might call it quasi-governmental in that sense. It's directly regulated by the SEC, and its responsibility is to regulate broker-dealers in the United States. It has a rather long history before the federal securities laws were enacted beginning in 1933, the stock exchanges were self-regulatory and they had a long tradition that dated back to the 19th century, even before actually with the Buttonwood Agreement of regulating their own members. And most of that regulation had to do with um, concern about whether one member might rip off another member of the exchange. Um, so the, the purpose was to maintain a set of principles that all the members would comply with. Um, and that tradition continued and developed all the way through the twin 1920s. With the Great Depression, Congress decided to create uh, federal agencies dealing with financial regulation and in the 1933 Act, the Securities Act authorized the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to regulate the securities markets. But in the following year, in the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, created the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, at the same time, in the 34 Act, it empowered formally the exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange, and other stock exchanges to become what are known as self-regulatory organizations. So they are responsible for formally regulating their members under the oversight of the SEC. So their rules were, and they still do, they, so the rules have to be adopted by the SEC. They would have enforcement authority over their members to comply with those rules and the SEC rules. It was a whole 
second layer of regulation that allowed the SEC to impose more general regulation on the markets. The issue though was that there were an awful lot of broker dealers who didn't have an exchange business. They were solely over-the-counter broker dealers and they were directly uh, regulated by the SEC. Um, this began to change with the Maloney Act, which was enacted in 1938 and authorized the creation of a National Securities Association, which is essentially uh, an SRO for the over-the-counter broker dealers. And that was uh, the National Association of Securities Dealers. So the NESD was created in 1939 and, and, uh, officially. Um, and for many years, Brokers didn't have, broker dealers didn't have to belong to the NESD or an exchange. They could choose to be regulated directly by the SEC. That changed in the 80s when a broker dealer with only a few exceptions, basically floor brokers, but all other broker dealers had to be members of an exchange. And typically every broker dealer in the country, just about every broker dealer in the country is a member of FINRA and then whatever exchange they uh, want a membership on. Now, NESD um, had a regulatory authority. Well, let me say in the 70s, NESD had the idea of creating um, a new type of exchange uh, that was an automated quotation service that was similar to an exchange but had different trading mechanisms, and that was NASDAQ. <clears throat> and it became really predominant in the NESD holding company. It was a huge part of the business of NESD. And regulation almost took a side, you know, it was almost a side responsibility. Uh, this created a major problem. In 1996, the SEC brought an action against NESD, finding that its regulatory efforts were woeful. Um, NESD set up a separate group called NESD Regulation, which was separated off from NASDAQ and subsequently spun off NASDAQ. So NASDAQ is a completely independent authority now, uh, uh, organization now. And meanwhile, NESD regulation, which was left, merged with the New York Stocks Exchange regulated, regulatory group to create FINRA. Uh, they changed the name to the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. So through that long process, that's how we end up with FINRA today. But the basic point to understand is that self-regulation predated the creation of the SEC and became more and more important for the broker-dealer industry over the you know, 80 years following the Great Depression. So back in 1996, was that the Odd Eights scandal? Yeah. Okay, and, and that was a conflict, perceived to be a conflict of interest between the NASD and the NASDAQ, and is that what motivated the separation? Right. The allegation was that market makers were backing off of trades that uh, didn't, you know, that were within the spread, essentially, um, and that the NSD regulatory authority wasn't aggressively enforcing its own rules and SEC rules concerning that activity. So how did you end up at the NASD? You started at the NASD? No, I didn't. Uh, I started at Tarleton Law Center. That's where everybody starts. And then I uh, worked for a few years at a law firm in Dallas doing mergers and acquisition work. Couldn't stand law firm practice. Went to Europe, worked for the European Commission for a year. 
then moved to the SEC for a few years, worked for a trade association, and then ended up in at the NESD in 1996. There were, at that point, after the enforcement action by the SEC, the uh, NESD decided to bring in some people who had proven regulatory experience. They brought in me, they brought in Rick Ketchum, they brought in Mary Shapiro at that time. And uh, that's when I went. So one question I have for you is, about FINRA and its mission. The FINRA mission is to provide investor protection and pr promote market integrity. Unlike the SEC, there is no mention of capital formation and market efficiency. How does that play out with the broker-dealers who comprise the FINRA membership? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, let me take this segment first. I think, you know, market efficiency is part of the FINRA mission. Um, I mean, market regulation is primarily done by the SEC, but there's a huge market regulation department at FINRA that's responsible for regulating the exchanges. And much of the regulation has to do with complying with, making sure they comply with SEC rules, but certainly FINRA has its own market regulation rules. So I wouldn't say that market efficiency is necessarily not part of FINRA's mission even though it emphasizes market integrity. Um, capital formation though, I think is primarily with the SEC because the SEC has a whole department corporate financing or corporate finance department at the SEC, which is responsible for regulating public disclosure by public companies, um, regulating private placements, you know, providing exemptions that allow for private placement. So the whole capital formation process comes much or much of it comes from that division, which doesn't exist in the same way at FINRA. FINRA does have a corporate financing department, but it's a different animal. It's not so much, it's not so much focused on capital formation as, as uh, how brokers perform their responsibility. So it's very hard to distinguish all that. I think they all have, FINRA has responsibility for capital formation in some ways, and as I said, market efficiency, but I'd say primarily the SEC is responsible for capital formation by regulated entities. So that leads into my next question. I'm wondering how FINRA works with the SEC, and let's start with enforcement. Where does FINRA end and the SEC start when it comes to broker-dealer regulation? Well, that's a good question too. We are, we, FINRA is the frontline regulator in the sense that FINRA regulates the broker-dealers directly, I mean, examines them directly as well as regulates them directly. The SEC also has a lot of rules under the Exchange Act that apply to broker-dealers. The SEC also examines broker-dealers but the SEC and actually the states as well rely heavily on FINRA's regulation so that their, their tenor of, of examining broker-dealers, for example, will be longer between examinations than FINRA's. FINRA regulates every broker-dealer at least once every four years, but because it's risk-based, some are you know, examined every year and many are examined more often than every four years. Whereas the SEC in the states, some states never go in to look at a broker-dealer. They rely entirely on FINRA. And by the way, those are some of the states that are most critical of FINRA in terms of policy, but they regulate heavily on FINRA 
for its exams. And the SEC also will tend to examine FINRA's examination of broker-dealers almost at least as much, if not more, than its direct examination of the broker-dealers themselves. Is there redundancy there? I mean, is FINRA and the SEC examining the same entities? Do they collaborate? I mean, do they coordinate and how they do that? Yeah, they, they do coordinate. There is a history of redundancy and annoyance by broker-dealers at having you know, multiple regulators come in. Um, but over the past 10 years, I'd say there, there's been much greater coordination between the two. You know, it's obviously good for both. There's no reason for FINRA to be second guessed by the SEC before or after an exam. And there's no reason for the SEC to use its resources when FINRA is looking at the same entity. So there's, there's much more coordination. I should mention some big broker dealers you know, the ones you've heard of, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, they have dozens of regulators who come in because they have all, they have FINRA and the SEC, they have all the financial, the bank regulators, OCC, FDIC, the Fed, they have state regulators, they're global, so they're international regulators. So the number of regulators who come in and look at them is just mind-boggling. And you really have to wonder about the inefficiencies that must create. So I know the Fed actually has, for the larger broker-dealers, staff on site that have offices on-premise at some of the larger players. Does FINRA, do they just have a point in time every year they go in, or do they have ongoing relations? Is there ongoing dialogue? Is there special treatment for the particularly high-risk BDs? Yeah, special treatment's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, there's, there's special treatment for the high-risk ones. Um, so the, the, the frequency of examinations will be higher. Obviously, the likelihood of a referral to the enforcement department. And, and FINRA has full enforcement authority and sanction authority. They can bar people from the and firms from the industry. So, yeah, they, they do tend to focus on some firms more because of the higher risk that they create. And they've, over the last 15 years, made their risk analysis much more sophisticated so that they can much better gauge which firms are likely to create problems. So what's the difference in authority between FINRA and the SEC? You mentioned that FINRA is frontline and they can issue sanctions and bar players from the industry. Are there limitations to what they can do relative to the SEC? And if so, what are they? Well, everything they do has to be uh, well, in terms of rulemaking, everything they do has to be approved by the SEC. So their rulemaking authority is a bit cumbersome because they, they will propose their own rule, they'll adopt their own rule, then they've got to file it with the SEC, which proposes it and adopts it. And then, of course, it can be challenged in court. So on the rulemaking side, they're quite restricted. On the enforcement side, one might argue that they're actually, they actually have much greater latitude than the SEC in some ways, because it's technically, I mean, it's a volunteer organization. You don't, a broker dealer doesn't have to be a broker dealer. If they choose to be a broker dealer, theoretically, they could create another national securities association. FINRA is not a monopoly in that sense. It, it is the only one now in existence other than the exchanges, but you know, another one could be created. So because it's a private company and because the members are members, it's not limited, for example, by some of the due process restraints that occur in criminal law 
and it and it can demand information from broker dealers without having them, for example, plead the fifth. So and it can it can bar for, and it has barred individuals for not responding to requests for information. So I think in some ways the enforcement authority is a broader authority. Now there isn't a whole pellet of process that goes up through FINRA itself has its own appellate process, and then it can go up to the full SEC and from that to the circuit courts. So there is a whole appellate process associated with their enforcement activity, but the SEC has the same thing. So I think in some ways their enforcement authority is broader. Are there any conflicts of interest that arise in FINRA being funded by the registrants that oversees? Well, there's a, that's, an, that's an issue that always has to be managed. And as I said, 1996, the SEC brought a case arguing essentially that the conflicts of interest were undermining uh, NESD's enforcement efforts. The FINRA has done a lot, particularly since 96, to try to manage those issues by having a staff that's totally independent, a CEO. When I, when I joined, for example, the chairman of the board was from a broker-dealer. That's not true anymore. Um, the CEO is an independent person, Robert Cook, who used to be head of the division of market regulation at the SEC, who came over. Um, the chairman of the board is typically a non-industry person, and a majority of the board members are non-industry. So that right off the bat, the governance itself is now although it includes broker-dealers, has certainly built in mechanism to limit those conflict issues. But it's something that we always have to deal with and, and it's built into all the processes at FINRA, the, the enforcement, the regulatory, the rulemaking, the interpretive, because it's it does FINRA no good, for example, to allow a conflict to undermine its enforcement and have a scandal break that, that hurts its reputation. So it's, it's an issue that has to be managed. I think it does a very good job of doing that today. So you, you touched on policy. Let's dig in a little bit there. Uh, at times, the broker-dealer community has pushed back on the SEC in terms of SEC rules or things that Congress is contemplating. I'm curious, how does FINRA get involved or not when there are controversies? It really depends on what they are. You know, if there are controversies that are going to severely affect FINRA's ability to manage its program, and that are controversies in which FINRA's position coincides with that of the SEC, then FINRA would be more likely to go directly to Congress, assuming it's a legislative issue, would be more likely to go to Congress. And FINRA does obviously need to establish a rapport with those who are, particularly those who are on the committees of jurisdiction in both houses of Congress, so that they understand what FINRA is, what its responsibility is, if they have any concerns, FINRA should hear about them. But it typically won't, for example, get involved in legislation directly unless one of those issues exists. You know, it's going to implicate FINRA or FINRA's regulation or FINRA has a strong investor protection interest in the outcome. So I was quite involved years ago in the whole fiduciary question, uh, which came up not only in terms of whether broker dealers should be subject to fiduciary duty, but also to the flip side, which is hardly ever mentioned. And that is that 
investment advisors in the United States have a business that's very similar to the business of a broker dealer. You know, most individual financial advisors are licensed with a broker dealer and they're also licensed with an investment advisor. But they're subject to two different statutes. An investment advisor is subject to fiduciary duty, a broker dealer is not. But the flip side of that is investment advisors, even the federally registered ones are never examined for the most part. The average SEC examination of a registered investment advisor is once every 11 years or so. And it's been that way for decades. So the flip side, on the one side, you have fiduciary standard for broker dealers, the, the question of whether they should be subject to a fiduciary standard rather. But the other question is, well, investment advisors are subject to fiduciary duty, but they're never examined. So we don't know whether they're complying with it. That was a context in which we became involved because we decided, this is around the time of the financial crisis soon after, that we believe that there should be a fiduciary standard for broker dealers but there also be, should be some mechanism to ensure that investment advisors are regularly examined. So what we had su supported was legislation that was introduced in the House to create a, an SRO for, an invest, for investment advisors. And we also supported the idea, as I said, of a fiduciary standard for broker dealers. That was an example, I know I'm giving a very long answer, but I'm doing that to, to illustrate the type of legislation we might get involved in directly, because that was a situation which we felt strongly that investors were not being protected on the advisor side, investment advisor side. We felt strongly that broker-dealers could be subject to a higher standard, and for that reason, we thought that these issues were compelling enough for us to get involved, and the SEC while they weren't firmly in support of the SRO idea, the staff did its own report, which suggested that that might be a, a good alternative. And so we felt comfortable urging that type of legislation. When you say we, does that refer to FINRA, FINRA staff, you know, thinking about these issues, or does it reflect lobbying by broker dealers or members and channeling their views through FINRA to issues like this? It was, it was our own view, um, but, you know, I, I'm not going to deny that our views were informed by the perspectives of the broker-dealers, which, by the way, are incredibly diverse. We tend to think of broker-dealers as a single entity, but the vast majority of broker-dealers in the U.S., for example, are shops of 10 employees or fewer. The ones we think of, the ones I mentioned earlier, the Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, those are huge wirehouses that are the small minority in terms of numbers. So when we at FINRA would talk to firms, we're probably talking much, much more to the small firms and getting their different views. And there's a huge variety of perspectives. Having said that, yeah, we, we would listen to their perspectives and decide which ones had good public policy uh, points and which ones would protect investors and which ones wouldn't really protect investors. The fiduciary position we took, for example, was opposed by a lot of broker-dealers. They did not think that was a particularly useful position to take. So, you know, we, we listened to them and then we came up with our own suggestions. Is there a perception that FINRA is captured by the industry in the same way that the SEC is sometimes accused of being captured? Well, yeah, that's an interesting 
question. I mean, people will always confuse, uh, always um, accuse a regulator of being captured by the industry. Um, and it's interesting, I, as a sidebar, on the left side of the political spectrum, there's an accusation that industry captures a regulator. On the right side of the political spectrum, there's often an accusation that certain elements of an industry will capture a regulator to discourage competition. So they'll use regulation to, as, a, as a protectionist means. I think that risk exists for any regulator, but I really, in my, my long experience, I think it's frankly overblown. I have a lot of complaints about how regulation occurs. I don't really feel like it's, I've never really felt like it was particularly captured by industry. But that is, I think that's similar to the, con, it's related to the conflicts issue you asked earlier. FINRA needs to manage the questions of how much influence a broker dealer can have or any broker dealer or the industry as a whole can have over its regulatory decision-making. And the only way to do that is to have certain processes in place that insulate the staff and the decision-making and the rulemaking so that he can listen to the views, the legitimate views of the industry, as well as the legitimate views of consumer advocates, but make its own independent decision about what's right. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about FINRA's relationship with exchanges. You mentioned that it was formed out of the NASD and merger with the NYSE, but those organizations still have their own SRO responsibilities. And over the past 10 years, the SEC has been working with the exchanges and FINRA on something called the Consolidated Audit Trail. How has that developed and what does the world of SROs and exchanges look like today? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship that's always a bit in flux, but essentially the exchanges have delegated much of their regulatory responsibilities to FINRA. So that was the, the original creation of FINRA, as I said, was the New York Stock Exchange Regulatory Authority merged with the NSD, NSD Regulatory Authority so that they created FINRA out of the combination. But FINRA took over the New York, exchange, New York Stock Exchange's regulation of the, of the exchange. And sometimes this, is hap this happens through the direct delegation under the Exchange Act. Sometimes it happens by agreement. The, the idea of CAT is essentially to have trading information and an audit trail of trading information that spans across all markets and all brokerage activities so that the various regulators can have insight into trading patterns. Much of the basis for CAT derives from hope about the uses of artificial intelligence, for example, and, deep, and, and machine learning to understand trading patterns better so that previously uncorrelated activities could view, be viewed as having some uh, correlation that would have been missed before. There has been interest by some of the exchanges in becoming more active in their own regulation. Uh, I think that's a that's something that fluctuates from time to time, but essentially FINRA still has respons primary responsibility for regulating exchange trading activity. I have a question about your own personal views on market regulation. You recently wrote a 360 law piece on Commissioner Peirce's speech about the conflict between government power and personal liberty. 
And uh, in particular, protecting investors by prohibiting activity removes freedom, even if it prevents costly mistakes like losing your retirement accounts. And I'm just wondering, you know, what are your personal views on the role of regulators and regulation and how was that shaped or formed or comport with your time at FINRA? No, uh, well, it's a good question. And generally my views comported with the public views of FINRA, but I had disagreements with people inside. Sometimes I thought we ought to be a lot tougher and sometimes I thought we were being unreasonable. But I think, I think that article reflects my perspective and my perspective in general is that I, I, I am skeptical of regulation, new regulation. I'm skeptical that new regulation necessarily will add much to the regulation that already exists. I'm not skeptical of regulation as a whole, I should say. I think regulation is necessary. I mean, I've spent my whole life in it. But what I'm talking about is new regulation. So when somebody says, oh, we need a rule on that, my first temptation was always to say, well, here are five, point to five different rules that already apply to the activity. And then I usually heard a reason why they didn't quite apply completely. But I'm, I'm, I tend to be skeptical about new rulemaking. And moreover, I think in today's political climate, which is an older person I find incredibly woeful, I think it's really important to be pragmatic and to understand how the other side feels. So one reason I wrote that article was to say, okay, you have somebody like Hester Peirce who tends to be uh, closer to the libertarian side of regulation, if that's not an oxymoron, but I think she is more of a free market person than some of her fellow commissioners. And then you have commissioners on the other side, like Commissioner Lee, for example, and probably Chairman Gensler when he's appointed, who are going to feel much more strongly that new regulation will be important in various areas. And I think it's important in this political climate to try to find, to try to understand how the other side feels, see the bona fides in their position, because usually they are made in good faith, and see if they can be somehow resolved. So what I suggest in that article was not necessarily reflective of my personal views about new regulation, but does explain how I think those two views can be compromised in a positive way, not in a negative way, but how they can together create new types of regulation that would allow for greater freedom, but also ensure that regulation is incredibly effective. So let's talk about new rules. There was a, a really big one under the Trump administration, under Chairman Clayton. It was regulation best interest. And you spoke a little bit previously about FINRA's involvement in the fiduciary standard and possibly examining investment advisors and creating a fiduciary standard for uh, broker dealers. Can you just give us some insight on what regulation best interest is and what it does and how we got there? Well, I'm a supporter of regulation best interest because it's to me, clarifies the duties and responsibilities that broker-dealers already have. Now, I could certainly have made the same argument about that that I was just alluding to, and you know, my concern about new regulation, why isn't the old regulation enough? Because we did have a suitability standard, we did have all sorts of sales practice rules that FINRA had adopted years ago, and the SEC has its own sales practice rules, and arguably those would have been enough 
And I think in many cases they were enough, but regulation best interest imposes a set of duties on broker dealers. And it also imposes specific compliance requirements, specific requirements on looking at conflicts of interest that I think are quite useful to have in one regulation. Uh, in many ways, they'll supplant the older requirements. So for example, the suitability standards for retail investors are largely supplanted by a regulation best interest. So that for that reason, I think it's useful. I will say that the, the background of regulation best interest and the background of the larger fiduciary complaint. You heard, probably heard from your last speaker, Barbara Roper, that the fiduciary standard still is more important for investors than regulation best interest. And she would probably still support a fiduciary standard. The background of all of that debate, in my view, has to do with latent skepticism about the commission business and the belief that there is no commission business which can really pay it pass muster in this day and age. And that's actually what I was always more troubled with, that the idea that if you earn a fee, whether it's a one-time fee as an investment advisor or a fee based on your assets under management invest, as an investment advisor, you're inherently more likely to act in the customer's best interest than if you receive a commission based on a transaction. And I just don't think that is economically true and it's not ethically true. And I don't think it's a good moral position to take. So I'm a supporter of regulation best interest, but what troubles me about the background discussion that led up to regulation best interest, but also continues with the question of a fiduciary standard is this view that basically commission business should be crushed and everybody should go with a fee-based business. That's the problem I have. Is there, you know, you, you, we keep saying fiduciary duty and best interest. Is there a one sentence definition for each? Well, I mean, the fiduciary stand, they, they're very similar, actually. And I, I, it's a good question. The, the one question to always ask those who support a fiduciary standard is, well, what ex exactly would it add? Because best interest, the regulation best interest imposes a set of duties that are, you know, a duty of loyalty, a duty of care, duty of good faith that are essentially the elements of the fiduciary standard for investment advisors. So they're very similar. You might ask, well, why not just impose a fiduciary standard? It's a really good question. I think the basic reason for that, for not doing that is again, that it's very hard, I think, to impose a true pure fiduciary standard on a commission business. Because once I'm paid to finish, you know, settle a transaction with you, and I don't get paid unless I settle that transaction. It's hard to cabin that kind of relationship in a fiduciary standard. So I think that may be the, the, the best reason for not imposing the fiduciary standard, but really the difference, the substantive difference between the advisor's fiduciary standard and regulation best interest are infinitesimal. And as a matter of fact, I can explain some ways in which regulation best interest is actually more onerous than the fiduciary standard for investment advisors. Do you think that the average investor, those that are in the most need of investor protection, understand the difference between all these standards of care and duty? That's a really good question. One point I argued quite vociferously, but more or less lost, and I argue this more generally, but here's a good example, is that 
consumers shouldn't have to know what the legal standards are because the point of the legal standards is to make sure that the regulator can protect the consumer. And if the consumer has to understand that somebody's under fiduciary standard or somebody's under Reg BI and make a decision accordingly, then, then we're all admitting that the standards are somehow, they may not be protected as well under one as under the other. And then we're gonna leave it up to the investor to figure that out. That approach doesn't make any sense to me. I think we ought to decide either we believe in the regulation behind an investment advisor's business and we believe in the regulation behind a broker dealer's business. And then the, the it shouldn't matter to the consumer. The consumer should feel that whatever arrangements best financially for the consumer should be the one that the consumer picks. Or we should figure out where those standards lack uh, protection and we should fix them. But it doesn't make any sense to me to say that we need to disclose. Now, obviously if a consumer wants to know, there should be a requirement to tell them. But I don't know why we need to burden the consumer with decisions about legal standards. So you mentioned Barbara Roper. She was indeed a guest on a previous episode and she had some criticism that the SEC didn't go far enough to define the best interest standard. It wasn't enough to rein in abusive conduct. And then she also had some doubts on the effectiveness of a new form CRS uh, that was designed to help on investors understand potential conflicts with their advisors and brokers. Are these fair criticisms? Do you have your own views? I'm not sure exactly what, how she criticized from CRS, but that's actually another example of the point that I've made. When you think about it, I, I think it's interesting to require disclosure of conflicts to consumers. But I, and, and certainly again, there should be a requirement that a financial service firm should disclose conflicts that are requested by the consumer. But once you require disclosure of conflicts, you're raising the question of whether the firm is actually managing them. So if a regulator has, let me put it this way, Reg BI already says, every broker dealer who's dealing with a retail investor has to comply with certain duties, has to act in the best interest of the customer, has to analyze its conflicts and it does say disclose, mitigate or eliminate those conflicts. In the case of an individual rep, they actually have to either uh, mitigate or eliminate them. Disclosure isn't enough. So the question is, well, once you say disclosure, are we saying that the firm doesn't mitigate them enough? Is the firm actually mitigated, look at the conflicts, determined it was complying with its duties of, uh, under Reg BI and eliminated the conflicts that it can't mitigate it? Theoretically, there should be no need to disclose anything to the customer. Now, I know this sounds crazy because we're all used to saying that consumers need information, consumers need information. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it's highly unlikely that the consumers read that, that they appreciate it, that they care. They've already decided who their financial advisor is. And I think there's a real temptation by regulators to rely on conflicts, disclosure as a proxy for what really should be done, which is mitigation. Now, I think it's inevitable that firms have conflicts of interest. 
I just think that they need to be expected to deal with them. And maybe the way to deal with them is to say the conflicts just aren't that great. You know, they're not going to, the potential for harm is too minimal by the way we've mitigated them. But I just think I'm not a huge fan of disclosure of things like conflicts. It goes back to my earlier principle, which is to say that I, if regulation is working well, the better regulation works, the less effort is required of the consumer. I think you make a good point and that raises a question I've always wondered and that even if you disclose a conflict to a customer and even if they understand that conflict doesn't matter to them and you know what is the what is the effect of transparency in disclosing conflicts with someone who maybe has already decided no matter what they're going to use a particular advisor does it have an effect right and and I think it it again um it misapprehends the relationship between a financial advisor and a customer, which is not too different from your relationship with a lawyer, relationship with a doctor. I mean, if I, if I have an internist and I've been visiting the internist for five years and suddenly the internist has to disclose a conflict that he might have with a pharmaceutical company and he gives me a piece of paper and I read it, am I really going to go to a different internist? Am I really going to decide that I'm not going to, take that medication. Um, there's just a certain point where it doesn't matter. And I think it's, it's not particularly harmful to give it to them, but once regulators and firms begin to rely on conflict disclosure, they, I think they get lazy and the hard work of mitigation of those conflicts is, is missed. So do you think that the SEC should do anything more or that the Biden administration will do anything more or whether there be a fiduciary duty incoming for uh, broker dealers? Well, I'm not very good at predicting. Um, I don't, if I were to bet, uh, which I wouldn't, uh, I would say that they're less likely to do anything by rulemaking is they are to do something by enforcement and examination. Reg BI is written in a way that's, that it contains, it contains broad principles and they're principles that need interpretation. And it's easy enough for the commission staff to interpret those principles in ways that are more investor focused and investor oriented than perhaps they could be. And in other words, they're all, there are choices that the staff can make on how it interprets any element of Reg BI. And I think it's more likely that if they're gonna be more consumer oriented in its interpretation, that they'll just do that through the interpretation and not through rulemaking. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit and ask you about a, a current event about a company called GameStop. And it's been widely reported that a Reddit user group called Wall Street Bets has pushed up the prices almost tenfold in just a couple of days. And the purported motivation was simply uh, to squeeze the shorts and not based on fundamentals. In fact, most would argue that the fundamentals couldn't support this particular price increase. And I just want to get your, to start, like, what is your, rea your reaction to this? Like when you saw this, what did you think? Well, it's interesting. The first thing I thought was I didn't realize GameStops were still in malls. Um, and I also wondered why in the world aren't they raising capital? But as to the basic issue, you know, I haven't looked at the data, but I had two questions that maybe somebody like you could 
tough answer. The first question is how different is this short squeeze from short squeezes that occasionally happen and have always occasionally happened since short sales were possible on exchanges. Is it different in quality or in quantity? Is it more volatile and more extreme than usual or is there something qualitatively different? Now, in, in the argument is that it is different because it's so, uh, so much driven by the retail market. Uh, but that's my second question. How much is it really driven by the retail market? And certainly the Reddit site, the Reddit platform has been mentioned in diversely every news report as a source for the short squeeze. What I've looked for, and at least as of a couple of days ago, I haven't found is the average purchase size for these transactions. I assume they're very small. And I assume given the reaction by the big retail firms like Robinhood, that there is a huge amount of activity by their customers. But I would be interested in how much of this has been going on on the institutional side. And certainly the latest reports are that the institutions have jumped in. So how much of it actually is driven by the retail market and how much isn't? You know, in terms of one of the first pieces I saw was a piece that referred to the Twitter feeds that were saying, well, you see the efficient market theory is bogus. First of all, nobody really understands the efficient market theory except for people who are steeped in it like you would be. But moreover, I just think there's sometimes when stocks trade like commodities and they don't trade based on under, under, underlying value, they trade on expected price. Quantitative hedge funds are designed in many cases to do that. They have algorithms that are momentum driven and price driven. They're not looking at fundamental valuation of, a, of an asset. So I think this is an example of that. And again, my question is how qualitatively different is this? And is the consensus view that this is retail driven actually true? Yeah, so the, you make a good point that we're, everybody's jumping to the conclusion that it's the retail investors pushing this. And as economists would say, it's an empirical question and regulators have the data and they can certainly look at it and see if that's true. Um, but let's assuming that it is true, does it surprise you that retail investors can move prices in this way and not an insignificant size stock? It's not a, this is not a classical pump and dump in a penny stock. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, a market cap of 30 billion at the, at the height type stock. Does it surprise you that retail investors when acting in coordination can have this sort of effect? I, I guess it does. And let me give you two reasons which have nothing to do with each other and maybe a little bit off the wall. The first is that we've all become, become accustomed to the wisdom of the crowds. I mean, when we buy something on Amazon, at least I look at the star rating first and I rent something on Airbnb, I look at the star rating first and I look at the, the more people who have rated, the better I feel. It's kind of similar, except this is in the magnitude of millions of bits of activity and bits of data. But it's another example of the wisdom of the crowd. The other reason I'm not surprised is that I have a theory of human psychology that's 2020 based. And that is that I think in times of plague, people do all sorts of crazy stuff. And I would attribute some of the crazy stuff last year, maybe 
to the pandemic. And it may be that some of this is attributable to the pandemic. It may be in 10 or 15 years, behavioral scientists will look back at this period and say, wow, we can now understand some of the sociological effects of a pandemic on human behavior. And it may be that you got a bunch of people who have a lot of money who are sick of being inside, and this is a great way to gamble. I don't know if you heard, but yesterday, Robinhood and other brokerages attempted to put a stop to all this in GameStop, as well as a handful of other equities featured on the Reddit page by restricting trading, specifically prohibiting buys while still permitting sales. Do they need regulatory approval for this kind of action? And do you think they conferred with FINRA or the SEC before making these moves? Yeah, I'm not familiar with exactly what the different broker dealers did. Um, I mean, I've read a little bit. I heard an interview with somebody from TD Ameritrade who I think said all we did was uh, limit margin positions and prohibited short sales. Um, I guess some of the reports on Robinhood seem to say that they prohibited some new purchases. They prohibited all new purchases. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that's that was what was reported, and and it was and I I'm. You know, I, it's a good question whether they're limiting what they can do. I would be suspicious that I would be skeptical that they are limited for the simple reason that much, much of the regulation of broker dealers has to do with their capital and liquidity positions. And that's true not only of the Robin Hoods and the TD Ameritrades who have the trading activities with with their customers, but also the clearing firms, the ones that actually clear their trades for them, they have their own capital requirements and own liquidity requirements. So if a firm feels that it's in any kind of financial stress, even if it's not, but if the possibility exists, I would expect there to be quite a bit of leeway for them to take appropriate action. And even aside from that, um, you know, if they're undergoing a lot of reputational risk and they need that reputational risk to rise from harm that their own customers are inflicting on themselves, they're private companies. I'm not sure that they are prohibited from telling the customers, okay, we're going to protect you in this way. I just tried to transfer money between two bank accounts, one in, in two different firms yesterday. Well, the bank imposed a limit on how much I can transfer. It's a pretty small limit, but they want to do that to protect me from possible invasion and fraud into my accounts. I didn't ask him to do that. Um, it restricts my freedom to move money between accounts, but it protects me. And I'm not sure that broker dealers are going to be viewed as being too restricted in being able to do that. Having said that, again, I don't know exactly what they all did. And it may well be that some of the activities they engaged in have a, a, create a problem under existing rules. I'm curious whether you see any problems with shutting out retail investors from the market, particularly creating the asymmetric pricing pressure on the retail side while institutions are still allowed to actively trade in these equities. Well, it's a good question because um, you know, politics enters into all of this. And it's interesting because you have people who previously were so concerned about retail investors that they didn't think they should be able to buy anything or hire broker dealers on a commission basis, suddenly saying, 
they need full access to the market and they should never be slowed down in their ability to buy GameStop. And then you've got people who are strong believers in the free market uh, who think the private business should be able to make their own decisions saying, well, we're not sure the broker dealers should be able to shut retail investors out. And we're going to, we think the SEC should look into this. The bottom line is that a broker dealer that's a primarily a retail firm is going to have to make its own decisions about its economic position, its financial condition, and then what's good for its customers. Um, I doubt that many broker dealers who have a mixed business, say a broker dealer that is 50% institutional and 50% retail, if such a broker dealer even exists, would say, well, we're just going to favor the institutional side and not the retail side. What tends to happen is you have institutional broker dealers and retail broker dealers, and then some with a mix in between. And the ones we're focusing on right now are the heavily, heavily retail broker dealers. Now that's not to say their only business is retail. They have a lot of, you know, large private net worth customers, like family offices, things like that. But we're really talking about the retail business and they're not in, as far as I'm aware, they're not saying, well, we're gonna let the hedge funds still trade through us. We're just gonna shut out the retail. So you alluded to in the initial part of your response that it wasn't clear to you if there was actually a problem uh, you know, with this or an enforceable action, and maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, um, you can clarify, but the SEC yesterday uh, issued a statement saying, we will act to protect retail investors when the facts demonstrate abusive or manipulative trading activity that is prohibited by federal securities law. And so I just wanna to touch back on this idea, is there an enforcement action? Um, do you think, based on what you've seen, not holding you to this, given that you don't have all the facts, that this looks like manipulative behavior in the sense that it should be a prohibited activity, either now or perhaps in the future? Yeah, I, I wanna make it very clearly, as a regulator, I'm, I strongly believe in regulation and I just don't know enough of the facts of what they did to know whether they violated any rules. And if there was manipulation, then, I mean, whoever did it should be shut down completely. Based on the reports, I'm not sure how there could be manipulation because it seems as if it was a coordinated effort by the crowd, not by somebody who has domination and control of the market. But having said that, like I said, I really don't know the facts well enough, but if there was manipulation or serious violation, I think whoever did it should be barred from, from trading. So let's move to Robinhood for a second. You mentioned them, or maybe Sloan mentioned them. We had Dan Gallagher, their chief legal officer, on uh, a couple of weeks ago, and maybe he wouldn't have come on if this episode had uh, occurred. You not want to talk about it, but certainly they've been the center of attention, um, and they've you know, been challenging the established orthodoxy uh, on, uh, on investing, and he's, they've had a lot of critics. And one of the criticism has uh, been gamification. And you have a lot of trading now that might be uh, due to uh, different factors that previously existed before you had a really cool trading app. And I'm wondering, do you have any views? Is it too easy and fun to trade stocks? And should we be concerned? And is it related to this current episode? Well, yeah, I'm not going to comment on Robinhood because I haven't been on the Robinhood site too much, really. But I, I think it is a problem. I don't think it's necessarily a regulatory problem, although there may be some regulatory solutions that could be 
imposed, but I think it's really a problem for investors if if they confuse trading with investing. I mean, I guess I don't have an inherent problem with trading stock like commodities. I just would never do it. And I think in the long term, you're not going to make any money doing that. I don't have a problem with going to Atlantic City or to Vegas to, to gamble. But if you think you're going to come out after six months of doing that every day, all day, and come out ahead, I think you're sadly mistaken. So to me, it's a, it, it is a problem, but it's a problem in terms of educating consumers and making sure that they understand the difference between trading and investing. It's like the difference between, you know, snorkeling and scuba diving, basically. I mean, one is a cheap thrill and one is actually doing some serious work, which has much more long-term benefit. I don't know if that's a good metaphor, but uh, it's the one I came up with anyway. Going off of uh, that metaphor, I was curious about your thoughts. A lot of it has been tied to Robinhood, but also more generally the uh, ease of access to options trading approval that uh, we've seen in the past few years. And I don't know if you heard this summer, there were some stories about uh, significant losses and unfortunate actions and the whole. And so I was curious what how you thought that plays into the whole gamification and whether investors think of it as investing or more of a gamble? I, you know, um, again, I guess I have the same answer. There may be some room for regulation in that area. Um, not just options, but any kind of derivative trading. But to me, the issue, and that was an incredibly tragic case, but the issue really is whether people who are engaged in any activity, including trading options, understand them. I mean, for example, there are option strategies that are quite complex and that expand the risk, the, the, the risk of the, the you know of engaging in a particular activity. But much of the options trading is actually a form of insurance. It's a way of limiting risk. And one reason, frankly, I just speaking personally, I don't engage in a lot of options activity is that once I've decided to buy a financial asset, I don't really want to buy insurance on it because I've made my decision about the prospects for the asset. And for that reason, don't really feel the need to invest in options. But a lot of people don't look at options as insurance. They look at it as a way to get leverage on a trade. And much as my answer concerning the difference between trading and investing uh, reflects a concern about what people understand when they do it, I, I feel the same with options. I think if a retail investor understands, okay, the, the best way to use an option in your position, given your net worth and your, where you are in your life, if you're going to use it, use it as insurance in this way, and let me teach you how to do it, maybe with a CFA charter, that's great. But as soon as somebody begins to do it, do it as leverage, the harm that they're going to create by trading frequently is just magnified by the leverage. And that's what I'm really concerned about. Can we tie this back to regulation, best interest at all? Is there a role for Reg BI in anything that we're seeing in markets today? Well, there would be, and there is, if any of these strategies are recommended. But most of what we're reading about probably is not recommended. It's self-induced craziness by investors or traders, really. 
but certainly, uh, you know, which is another interesting point on the whole fiduciary discussion, which I hadn't thought of. A huge amount of market activity wouldn't be a be, wouldn't be subject to a fiduciary standard anyway, because there's no recommendation, there's no financial advice being provided. It's people, you know, pointing the pistol at themselves and and pulling the trigger. So. I don't know that there's a huge, I think most of the ideas that I could see coming out of this, the regulatory concepts coming out of this would be more in the long lines of disclosure or gates that people would have to go through before they could engage in certain activities. Do you think the democratization of investing as seen in the disappearance of training fees and account minimums necessitates any of these changes or other adaptations in regulation? I, you know, I think, I think the democratization of investing is fantastic because, you know, in my, in my parents' generation, even in my grandparents' generation, if they were lucky to save, they were lucky. If they were lucky to save in a insured account that would pay a low interest rate, then at least they had that security few of them had were lucky enough to buy assets like stocks or you know the old mutual funds that would increase with value as the economy grew now everybody has that ability so i think the democratization of this type of investing is fantastic because everybody everybody's kind of the king of their or queen of their own kingdom and gives them control and responsibility the thing I'm concerned about is the democratization of trading, which is unavoidable. If you get one, you're going to get the other. But I'm, again, worried about how well-educated people are when they're engaged in trading. If they're going to treat it like gambling and they're going to, you know, control themselves and, you know, invest $50 at a time or trade $50 at a time, that's one thing. But if they feel that their life savings could be subject to such trading activity, I think it's a terrible tragedy. Tom, you've uh, been with us for a while. You've answered a lot of our questions and we appreciate your time with us. And I'm going to turn to Sloan and let him have the last question. So do you have any advice you would like to give young professionals interested in financial regulation? Yes, I would recommend, if, assuming it's securities, I mean, banking is a different issue. I, I would recommend getting either a PhD in economics or a law degree with a lot of uh, financial regulatory substance uh, in their coursework, getting a CFA charter and going to work for the SEC. Preferably if you're gonna go work for the SEC, do what I did, which is go work for the general counsel's office. Because I think when you go into a particular division of the SEC or any other regulator, you tend to be cabined into what they're doing and you may not understand what the other divisions or departments are doing. So the general uh, uh, office like the general counsel's office or the SEC or similar offices and other regulators gives you a broader perspective of the whole area. Uh, and I think gives you more opportunity to learn about different parts of regulation. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thank you, really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please tell others about it. 
Future episodes will continue to explore topics in financial market regulation. Our aim is to make the issues both interesting and understandable. The production is brought to you by the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. If you'd like to learn more about the center, visit salemcenter.org. Our student executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr from the Moody's College of Communication. My co-host for this episode is Sloan Ungerman from the UT Law School.